0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: The industry of the healthcare sector has been going through uh, a significant adjustment in the last few weeks. When businesses decide to close their doors, there's usually a process that is followed to ensure an orderly exit to their operations. But what if that business is a hospital? That's what's happening here in Philadelphia. With the announcement of the impending closure of Hahnemann University Hospital, it's a 496-bed facility also with an emergency room for 150. The closure was supposed to start over the July 4th weekend but the state stepped in to temporarily keep services at full strength, fearing significant problems over the holiday. This is just the latest in a string of hospital closures, mostly in rural areas, which is limiting access to health care in many areas around the country. With more, we're joined here in studio by Lawton Burns, who's professor of health care systems and professor of management here at the Wharton School, and also with us, Rob uh, Field, who's a professor of law and professor of health management at Drexel University, and also a lecturer at Wharton's Healthcare Management Department. Gentlemen, great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. So this potential move here in Philadelphia, how much of a microcosm is it for some of these other instances that are popping up around the country right now?
0: Well, I think if you take a historical perspective, hospitals have been closing for the last four to five decades. So, this isn't a seismic shift. This is more of a gradual decline in the hospital industry. As I, said, I remember in 1982, a major book was written. It was called Can Hospitals Survive? Okay, that book was prescient because it was looking downrange and realizing that a lot of hospitals aren't going to be able to make it over the long term. But it's yeah. been a slow, steady decline. If you look at the number of hospitals in the United States, it's, it's gradually declined because the hospital inpatient business is a flatliner. At best, okay. and oftentimes it's declining. And so the, the the future growth of the of the hospital business is not in inpatient care; it's outpatient care.
2: So this this
0: is just part of a wider trend.
1: Rob,
2: uh, what we're seeing as a general trend is consolidation, and we're seeing the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So the major hospital systems here in Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania in particular, uh, are growing like crazy, um, and we're seeing that in, in cities around the country. They're adding high tech procedures and equipment. Uh, they're now on to gene therapy and these futuristic kinds of treatments. Uh, but the lower tier hospitals, which is what Hahnemann has been, or even the mid-tier ho- hospitals yeah. have not been able to survive on their own. Uh, so we're seeing everything drawn to the major centers, which is a particular problem in rural areas where those centers might be 50 miles away. So
1: how do you gauge that, that, that mid-tier or that higher tier by the number of beds that are that are in these facilities? It, it's, it, there was a time Time when number of beds really mattered. Uh, Now
2: it's really the the payer mix. Uh, Hospitals like uh, Hahnemann rely heavily on Medicaid, uh, and they have a a fair number of uninsured patients for which they don't get reimbursement. Uh, I think that's the more crucial issue. Yeah, I would add that
0: it's uh, in addition to the payer mix, you need to have a healthy percentage of your patients being commercially insured. If all of your patients are insured by Medicare or Medicaid, you're in trouble. Because right. Medicare and Medicaid don't pay 100% of the hospital's costs, according to the American Hospital Association. So you better have a good chunk of commercially insured patients with private insurance in your market, and then you have to get a good share of those commercially insured patients. Right. Not everybody can because patients can pretty much go where they want. Right. And you know, Penn Penn has this motto here, you know, Rob mentioned the University of Pennsylvania growing. Penn has a motto uh, your life is worth Penn Medicine. Well, that's designed to attract the commercially insured patients to go to Penn. Yes, the healthcare is more expensive, but, boy, you know, you know, your life
1: is on the line. You're willing to pay for it. Other places can't make that same claim. So, and with the growth that we've seen, and using Philadelphia as an example right now, there are a variety of different health systems. So when you have these health systems, an entity like Hahnemann— being, even though it is owned by a company, being being kind of a single entity here in this market, makes it makes it hard for them to survive.
0: Well, hahnemann has got several problems. Uh, one is that Philadelphia has historically had more beds, hospital beds, than it needed, so we call right. it an overbedded market. Right, and if you have uh, too many beds in a market, that means the hospitals are kind of grubbing. For market share right. and willing to do anything to get it. In addition, Philadelphia has historically had too many academic medical centers. So when I got here in, uh, to Philadelphia in 1994, and that's when I met Rob, he's over here at the university as well, uh, we had five academic medical centers hardly any other city our size has that many. You'd probably have to go to Boston or New York to find almost that many academic medical centers, and they all can't compete for the same patients.
1: Is it similar in in, in some of the other big towns? You mentioned Boston obviously being one, but when you think of, like, L.A., Seattle, Atlanta, are are, are you talking about similar dynamics there as well? Some
0: of the same. In Boston, it's it's clearly the case, because the top two academic medical centers in Boston are are Brigham and Women's and Massachusetts General. In 1993, they merged to become one system. And so that became the dominant system in Boston. And the other teaching hospitals that were affiliated with Harvard had to form rival groups, and they just haven't fared as well.
2: So there's another unique aspect of Philadelphia that plays out here, which is we're the only major uh, city that doesn't have a public hospital. Uh, So as a safety net, Boston, New York, uh, L.A., Chicago, uh, they all have one or more hospitals run or backed up by the government that takes care of the people who can't afford to go anywhere else. Right. Um, Philadelphia lost its major public hospital in the 1970s. It was never replaced. And here we've relied on the Independent hospitals, uh, nonprofit and, and for-profit, to carry that burden. Well, that's a pretty tough burden. Yeah. If you're University of Pennsylvania, Jefferson, uh, one of the other large ones, you can balance it out, as yeah. Rob was saying, with the private payers. Uh, Hahnemann had no one to balance it out with. So they were bearing the burden, a burden that's subsidized by the local or county government in most other large cities and they had no way to, to mitigate that the losses.
1: But yeah, you, just to just yeah.
2: build on Rob's point, there's a, a plaque
0: commemorating the prior location of Philadelphia's only public hospital <laughs> on Penn's campus. It was Philadelphia General Hospital. It was closed <laughs> in 77 by Mayor Rizzo at the time, for those of your listeners who were around at the time. Yeah. And we lost our only public hospital. That means the private sector had to pick up the slack. And if you look at the official statistics from the state, you can see there are three or four hospitals bear the uh, disproportionate share right. of treating the uninsured, the indigens. Um, Temple was one. Mercy is another. Hahnemann was number three. Right. And so Hahnemann was, was, was treating a lot of patients who just didn't carry much in the way of reimbursement to cover their costs.
1: But the dynamic then when you're talking about this as, as a larger scale issue, when you look here in Philadelphia, obviously if, if one hospital closes, you still have a variety of others that can be able to pick up the slack. In some rural areas, you don't, you don't have that option. Instead of a, a one hospital one town sit- setup. You're talking about maybe having to drive twenty thirty fifty miles to be able to get to a hospital, and that's where you get the constriction on on health care
0: that's right well it it's certainly a barrier, an important and serious barrier to access to health care because you may have outpatient or ambulatory care in those rural areas, but if your rural facility closes, you've got to travel a long way uh, and that's that's you know not a, not just inconvenient that may be harmful to the patient
2: yeah uh Rural access to health care is a perennial problem, just the logistics. You have to travel further, and if it's an emergency, uh, that's a real problem. Uh, You could drive an hour to a Best Buy, but you're not going to drive an hour while you have a a heart attack. Uh, So in the era when hospitals were the center of everything – and we could afford to maintain a hospital in every little town, and it would do a little bit of everything,
0: yeah.
2: uh, it was less of a problem. Uh, but we're, now we're seeing, as uh, I was saying before, the rich getting uh, richer, uh, the business going to the big city academic medical centers, uh, the poor getting poorer or going out of business, and to the extent we rely on hospitals as centers of care, that's a problem.
1: Is there, is there a way that potentially innovation can look yes. at this. like I, I'm thinking if Amazon can put a supply chain together right. to be able to move the materials that they move all across the country, I would think that maybe there's a way to be able to innovate this to, to make it better for some of the rural areas. Yeah, to, to drop what you need uh, from a drone into your house <laughs> yeah, or something, or, or, yeah. or something yeah. like that.
2: Well, uh, to a large extent, that is true. We're seeing more web-based care. Uh, we're seeing uh, electronic records where you can uh, find out what's, what's going on uh, from the comfort of your own home. Yeah. Uh, you can measure vital signs, blood sugar, blood pressure, cholesterol, and so forth from your home. Uh, so that fills in a lot of the gaps. We're also seeing more outpatient care, so you don't need a full hospital to get a lot of kinds of treatment. The problem is that doesn't cover everything. So, in particular, emergencies uh so yeah. if you're being treated for diabetes, a lot of that care can come out of your home. But if you have intense chest pains in the middle of the night, what do you do then yeah
0: right. totally agree i mean you'll you'll see some structural innovations like building like Slim, slim down or stripped down hospitals that don't necessarily have all the services in rural areas, just because they can't afford them. And by the way, people ought to understand that sometimes these rural hospitals don't have much in the way of doctors to staff them. Sure, and you know their their medical staffs are very small, and those rural hospitals are dependent on just a core number of physicians who carry a lot of the freight. And so you'll have some structural innovations like that. Uh, You may also have some technological innovations like telemedicine, (laughs) where you can at least do some diagnosis remotely, right. but that's not the same okay. as treatment or, or emergency care. Uh, and so that's going to be one of the real challenges for the rural hospitals.
1: I, I, what then, in your mind, what does the rural areas of the country look like moving forward? Because it would seemingly mm-hmm. be headed down a path of continuation of more of these facilities closing.
0: Well, I'll tell you what they've tried to do to forestall that. And, you know, Rob mentioned this earlier about the urban hospitals consolidating into systems. Yeah. Rural hospitals don't consolidate into systems. You know, they're, they're you know, 50, 100 miles apart, probably more. And so yeah. what they've done is historically they've formed consortia, consortia of rural hospitals. You know, it's like a loosely connected network of independent hospitals trying to work together, share as much as they can, yeah. eke out as much savings as they can on similar shared administrative services like that. I don't know, you know, if that's all been successful, but that's one of the things they've tried. That's their version of consolidation. Or once in a while, they may affiliate with a larger urban-based system that sees that rural area as sort of a feeder. You know, we sort of have that a little bit with Penn and yeah. Lancaster General Hospital. I don't want to call Lancaster General a feeder, and I don't, certainly don't want to call it your typical rural hospital, Yeah. because it's a big hospital in a, in a very prosperous area, you know, an hour and a half west of here. Uh,
2: but that's, that could happen as well. right? Yeah. Um, the government could step in and run some of these facilities as public hospitals. That would be the model that takes place in, in major cities. <clears throat> the problem is in a major city, you've got the patient volume. Uh, you've got enough people uh, in a concentrated area that funding a safety net hospital makes some sense. If you've got a small facility uh, with no doctors or a dozen doctors, uh, it's tougher for the state or the county to step in.
1: That's what was going to be my next question, because with what's going on here in Philadelphia and maybe partly because of the timing of July 4th, the state stepped in and said, well, well, we'll wait a minute. Hold on. You can't close your doors like that. You can't start sending people that would have been going to your ER to other facilities. Keep your doors open until you actually show us a plan for what's going to happen. The state stepped in because it's
2: the state's largest city uh, with a lot of economic activity, a lot of jobs, and a lot of voters. If this had been a small rural hospital in the middle of the state, I'm not sure the state would have stepped in the same way. By the way, just historically,
0: 21 years ago, the state stepped in to yeah. keep the Allegheny system afloat, at least physically. It went bankrupt in 1998, the largest hospital bankruptcy of all time. Rob and I were both here watching watching this, the demise of the system. But the governor of the state recognized that, you know, these were, you know— venerable institutions in Philadelphia didn't necessarily want to lose the jobs, didn't yeah. necessarily want to lose the hospitals. Yeah. So they brokered a deal to get Tenet to take over the former Allegheny hospitals, right? which included St. Christopher's and Hahnemann. Uh, and then they brokered a deal with um, Drexel to at least take over the medical school portion because that's what's funneling the residents and the medical students to provide yeah. some of the house staff for Hahnemann University Hospital. So the state's been down this road before. And, you know, the state kicked in a little money back then, but I don't think it's it's got enough money to kick in.
1: But here. is that a, dy- a a dynamic that you've seen play out in you know, other states as well over, well, over the course of It's played out
0: here in Philadelphia before. Philadelphia, yeah. I remember I studied the Allegheny bankruptcy, wrote a major review of its... I wrote it... Academic obituary, yeah. the, the uh,
2: definitive review. It's,
0: it's it, and I learned an awful lot from it. First off, Philadelphia is in some ways the epicenter of hospital bankruptcies. We've had more bankruptcies in this city than any other city. Most people just don't know this, and I didn't know it either until I, you know, got my hands dirty with the data. Uh, and these are serial bankruptcies. So the hospitals go bankrupt in a serial fashion, and the state and the city keep propping them up. Because it's a source of jobs, it's a source yeah. of local health care, and we don't want to lose that. So to some degree, we're kind of doing this to ourselves for
2: what we hope is a more noble purpose. Rob? Yeah. So to pick up on some of the history um, when the Allegheny system went bankrupt in 1998, uh, the state saw something like 17,000 jobs being lost in Philadelphia, not to mention a lot of health care, uh, stepped in and, and brokered the deal that sold them at fire sale prices yeah. to tenant a for-profit uh, operation. They promised to keep them all open for a limited period of time, and then one by one, they've been closing it so that there's only going to be one survivor now, St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, a for-profit operation isn't going to work well as a safety net. Safety nets, by their nature, are not profit-generating yeah. entities. Uh, so it was really just a matter of time.
1: But is this noteworthy, what ha- What may happen here in Philadelphia, for other cities who may have some of the similar dynamics to what is playing out here in Philadelphia with Hahnemann? I mean, w- the rural hospitals, that's, that's one element. When you're so far away from you know, what could be the main part of the system, when you're right. so far away from the next hospital... Those are dynamics. Those are economic dynamics that that do not lend itself to to success. When you're talking about a major city, when you have a variety of these different institutions, and and to a degree they're playing off of one another, and then you see one, obviously, with a history, an economic history of background, it makes you wonder whether or not that this is something where other cities should take note of this. Uh, They absolutely should. And I think
2: one of the real core conflicts here, which you see at the city level and also at the national level, is we still can't decide what healthcare is. Is it a commodity yeah. where you can have a for-profit company come in and make money for investors, or is this an essential public service where it's a government responsibility and the government should come in and take care of it? Um, and we've sort of tried to have it both ways, and I think that's the genesis of what happened with And We thought, uh, thought an investor-owned company could come in and make sense of this. Um, I think other cities are going to have to look at that model and figure out if it's at Sustainable, and if it's not, make the commitment, and mm-hmm. it's a financial commitment uh, to keep things going.
0: Right. There's some his- other historical lessons here. I find I always find fascinating because I teach management. One is the, the the hospitals here in Philadelphia. We had Hahnemann, we had St. Christopher's, we had Medical College of Pennsylvania, the United Hospital System, the Allegheny System in Pittsburgh. Came into Philadelphia starting in the late '80s through the early '90s and bought all these places up. Yeah, so they bought. I think, eight hospitals plus two medical schools. This has never been done before. Yeah. And so they're coming from Pittsburgh into Philadelphia, and as Rob and I both know well, these are totally different markets, Absolutely. totally different they cities. Yep. And Allegheny thought it could do here what it had done out in Pittsburgh. And what they discovered to their chagrin is that this this place is incredibly brutal as a competitive marketplace. So Tenet comes in, ten years later, you know, as part of this broker deal, and they think they can make something go with this. I don't think they understood the Philadelphia market either and so one, one of the things for your listeners to take away is that going into a different city is a totally different animal and you can't just replicate what you did in one city and do it in another city and expect to be successful but
1: that's the nature of, yes. of business in general is that you want to continue your expansion yes. even if it is halfway you know the other end of the state in the case of pennsylvania or other part of the country when you're talking about with some businesses you're talking about going against i i I believe, kind of a basic business dynamic here of saying, OK, hospital systems, maybe you need to pull back in general. Don't look to expand too much moving forward. Oh,
0: I, you know, that business maxim falls dead at the doorstep of healthcare. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. It was a uh, the former speaker of the House once said that all politics are local. And we, we've coined that phrase and adapted it, and in healthcare we say all healthcare is local. And so it's the local marketplace, what takes place in Philadelphia, or what takes place in Pittsburgh, or what place, takes place in New York. And we, we have a, a plenty of academic evidence showing that the dynamics change as you go from market to market to market. And so you can't just expect to you know roll out an expansion strategy and go into different markets
2: and expect to succeed. I think what's going to really get the attention of politicians more than the health care is the jobs. Uh, Health care is the major employer in a lot of cities uh, like Philadelphia, a lot of small towns. And uh, when the state stepped in 20 years ago, it was – thousands of jobs that would be lost. And I think when politicians are thinking about this, uh, they're going to be thinking about the jobs, the effect on the economy, and the effect on voters who are going to see themselves or family members losing their employment. But
1: again, especially at a time now where, and again, every monthly job report that comes out, the number one. Job adding right. sector is healthcare. Absolutely, and when you look at the chart of the growth
2: of healthcare employment, it's recession proof. Uh, yeah. Back uh, ten years ago, when we had the the Great Recession, every other industry fell off. Healthcare continued adding jobs yeah. as employment was tanking nas- uh, nationwide. Healthcare is almost a giant jobs program in this country, and if we are going to look at it as a commodity, we have to realize that if we don't support that commodity, uh, it's going to have major economic effects. Huh? Rob
0: is totally uh, correct. It's not only a major jobs creator. It's the number one source of jobs in, I think, 17 states. Yeah. So this, is, this, this is big business. This is big deal. Yeah. But if you look at the specific jobs that are growing in health care, it's not necessarily the jobs at Hahnemann. Okay, the major job growth in healthcare is for the lower-paid workers yeah. who are doing home healthcare skill, you know, skilled nursing aid, things like that. They're not mm-hmm. necessarily research scientists or you know uh, physicians uh, working at Hahnemann. Right. Uh, and so we have to keep that in mind, which suggests that you know one of the things that Hahnemann may want to do uh, is to try to you know continue its survival, but maybe repurpose itself so it's a little bit more of a community institution rather than academic institution. But that's totally against the, against the grain of yeah. 170 years of history and against the grain of what most of the people there would want to see.
2: Rob? Yeah. Um, a dynamic with Hahnemann and in most big cities, but probably not in small towns, is the value of the real estate. Yeah. Uh, Hahnemann yeah. is right in the heart of Philadelphia. Yep. And right uh, uh, as a nonprofit hospital, it doesn't pay taxes. Um, as a for-profit, it's a different story. But as a, a High-end residences or offices, it's incredibly valuable, and I think that's going to be a major driver of what ultimately happens.
1: You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Joined here in studio by uh, Rob Field of Drexel University, Lawton Burns of the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So then let's put this back in the perspective of the rural hospital for a second. If you're having a conference and you're sitting down with the management of a, of a rural hospital these days, what do you tell them about the dynamics of trying to be successful with some of these, these outcomes, these negative outcomes, which are obviously in play?
0: Yeah. Well, I've actually studied this in specific hospitals in rural areas. The rural hospitals that are going to succeed are the ones that can attract physicians and keep them there. That means those rural communities have to have some level of amenities you know, not just cultural, but educational a lifestyle that the uh, physicians and their families, you know, enjoy or want to be at. Yeah. Oftentimes, the rural hospitals will attract physicians who actually grew up in that area. And so rural hospitals will need to target their physician search activities towards doctors who came from that area who feel an affinity towards that area. And if you can attract the doctors, then you can attract
2: the patients. Rob? I, I think there's another issue we have to consider is that healthcare is undergoing what every other industry is in terms of technology. Yeah. Technology yeah. is restructuring them, it's eliminating one kind of job, it's creating opportunities for new kind of job, right. but that transition can be very painful. In healthcare, we see it more poignantly because it is such an employment driver and it affects all of us so personally but i think this is a symptom of what's happening throughout the economy and,
1: and do the bigger hospital systems benefit by their resources of being able to bring yeah. in more technology than some of these yeah these smaller rural facilities
2: yeah uh, it, it goes back to what i was saying about the rich getting richer and then they get richer and richer and richer uh, you have proton beam accelerators that cost hundred million dollars <laughs> um, Only a few uh, major medical centers can afford things like this. And as we go forward with gene therapy and other technologies, it's just going to get more and more expensive. Rob's totally correct.
0: Uh, However, I'm not as optimistic about the prospects for even some of the major urban hospital systems. If you look at the data from the last two or three years, most of them are hemorrhaging money. I mean, they're not even succeeding, and they've done the consolidation, and they have more commercially insured patients. But what's happening with a lot of the urban hospitals, whether they're big systems or small, is their expenses are outgrowing their revenues. Yeah. And if you have a significant share of your revenues coming from Medicare and Medicaid, that's easy to understand. And, and if you don't have market power and command, uh, you know, exorbitant rates from the insurance companies, you're going to be in trouble there, too, because you don't have enough private pay patients to offset the money you lose on the public pay patients. So that's why a lot of these hospital systems are in trouble. I think they're also in trouble because they've expanded so fast. And they they thought everybody has done the same thing. Everybody's drunk the Kool-Aid in building these large consolidated systems, which uh, Rob has talked about. And they all thought this was gonna be the winning strategy. It's not the winning strategy unless you execute upon that in, a, in an excellent way. And most of these places I haven't even thought about that. As, as, as I tell my students, hospital systems are not systemic. They can't act in a co- coordinated, coherent way. They just have sort of this assemblage of assets yeah. you know, spread across a market, maybe multiple markets, and it gets hard to manage that.
1: So it's the March of the Lemmings. Yes. They yeah. just <laughs> start following each other over the cliff. <laughs> Gentlemen, great having you here today. Thank you for your insight. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Joining me in studio, Rob Field from Drexler University, and Burns from here at the Wharton School.
2: For more insight
0: from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.